Uh, go ahead. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 5 is our scripture this morning. We have spent three lessons now going down through verse 16. And uh, that's a lot, of, a lot of work on 16 verses, especially in a chapter that has 47 verses. So uh, we've covered 16 out of 47 verses, have 31 to go. Effectively, we've done a third of the chapter. In uh, 16 would be exactly a third if this was 48 verses long. So uh, we have the remaining two-thirds of the chapter to do, and I want to get a good jump on that today, if not really wrap it up today. So let's uh, begin with prayer, ask the Father to sanctify our time, and uh, proceed to what he has for us, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do humble ourselves before your presence. We're thankful for your grace and truth. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have to assemble together. And Father, we pray that you would bring to our attention these uh, scriptures, these principles and, and doctrines that we need to learn and we need to believe by faith and we need to make application of. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We uh, dealt with the healing and the aftermath of the healing in the first five points of study. Point five was, in fact, the healed man was criticized for breaking the Sabbath, but he was obeying the Lord of the Sabbath. And in addition to verses 11 through 13 there, we also took you into some of the Mishnah, some of the Jewish texts where the traditions were recorded, and in particular the um, stipulations as it pertains to the Sabbath, the Sabbath observance, and all the rest. He was indeed the Lord of the Sabbath, that is his title, and yet uh, Matthew 12, 8 and, and uh, Mark speak to that. And yet, um, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, as far as the Jewish rulers were concerned, not only the Pharisees, uh, they were simply one party in the fight. Uh, you had the Sadducees as well, and you had other groups that were essentially utilizing their religion in order to dominate the people and in order to run things as they were doing so there in that day and age. But reading through the Mishnah in the passages that we looked at saw, I think pretty conclusively, that the man wasn't violating the Bible, wasn't violating Mosaic law, wasn't violating the Old Testament, but he was violating their traditions, the traditions of the elders. And having read from Shabbat, in uh, mainly chapter 7, a uh, pretty lengthy section there that details exactly what breaks the Sabbath in, according to their interpretation, uh, sure, he was guilty. He violated stipulation number 39 in what, what uh, violates the Sabbath. We'll move on this morning to point 6. When Jesus was identified as the one who had done the miracle, he was criticized for doing so on the Sabbath. Now he comes under the criticism. No longer are they going to jump over the man for violating the Sabbath. Now they have the opportunity to turn their guns on Christ himself. So as soon as they find out that this then becomes the avenue for attacking Christ, they're going to take advantage of that and criticize him for doing that. Now, so many principles we can apply under this, but I think... I emphasized it last week, I want to hit it again this week, that we have the principle of follow-up, the idea of following up. Jesus didn't just heal the guy and then uh, ride off into the sunset never to see him again. He follows up. He follows up the miracle with the teaching, with the word of admonishment. And um, we notice in verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you've become well, stop sinning. Uh, that is, in this particular realm of sin that led to the consequences of his illness, so that nothing worse happens to you. We realize the man was under divine discipline. The reason why he had this illness for 38 years, and whatever it was, whether it was his feet, or sometimes feet are, are used rather euphemistically for anything below the waist, the waistline, and so who's to know, but you know, there are possible indications here this might be something related to sexual offenses and, and, uh, and the circumstances there. But whatever it was, it was clearly a consequence for his sin. The Lord warns him now, you've, uh, you've been healed as a gift of grace, didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. And now that you've received grace, you might uh, consider 
uh, responding to that grace and living a life accordingly. See, and this is uh, this is the nature of salvation. This is the nature we're given a grace gift, and then we want to live the Christian way of life as a consequence, as a in appreciation in in the outworking of what we've been given uh, freely. Freely we have received, and freely we desire to give. I don't. I hope that believers and obviously believers in this assembly, but believers by and large, they don't look at the Christian way of life as a way to somehow earn their salvation after the fact uh, because you can't do that you can't pay for it before you're saved you can't earn it to get saved and you can't make it up to god afterwards uh if you're trying to do that then again you're attacking grace you can't deserve it but we we're not we're not living the christian way of life trying to pay god back we're living the christian way of life as a response in gratitude in worship and in praise and that's what the Lord's telling this man here. So I think this principle of follow-up becomes vital that we uh, prayerfully consider things as we minister, as we serve, as we witness, and stop to consider how we might apply the principle of follow-up. If we've given the gospel to somebody, follow up. And if uh, certainly if we've led somebody to Christ, definitely follow up, because you've got to follow up by getting them in, under teaching. You've got to follow up uh, uh, somebody's salvation with getting them grounded in the Word of God. So I think the Lord sets the pattern there very well. And, you know, the healed man is delighted at the follow-up. You know, prior to that, in uh, verse 12, they asked him, who told you to, to do this? And he said, well, I don't know. In verse 13, the man who was healed didn't know who it was. Now he has the opportunity to find out who it was, and he goes back and he tells them that it was Jesus. In verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And so now he knows who the Savior is. He knows who had healed him and it's not that it wasn't jesus who told him to carry his pallet it was jesus who made him well in verse 15 remember there's two two aspects going on here the man was healed that's the miracle that's the work of divine power that's for the glory of god the father and they don't ask him when he says uh, they say it's not lawful for you to to carry your pallet in verse 10 he answered and said well the one who made me well was the one who said to me pick up your pallet and walk so he communicates both things. I was healed, and he's the one that told me to, to carry my pallet home. And when they get accusatory in verse uh, uh, 12, they asked him, they don't ask him, who made you well? Who healed you? Who did the miracle? They ask him, who told you to carry your pallet? All right? And so that's what they're oriented to. That's what they're enslaved by is this, this uh, drive to... Uh, be bound by legalism, to be bound by rules of do's and don'ts and this and that, because they're the they're the rule makers. They're the ones calling the shots. But when he comes back to them to say, by the way, the man's name was Jesus, he doesn't say that in verse 15 that it was Jesus who told him to carry his pallet. He's he's back to focusing on the miracle. He says it is Jesus who made me well. And uh, I think that contrast between making well and instructing to carry the pallet is, is pretty clear there finally then where we ran out of time under sub point c the jews determined that jesus's activity on the sabbath warranted persecution and if you didn't get it down i would urge you to make a note of the verb dioko d-i-o-k-o or delta iota kappa, uh, omega kappa omega dioko those are long o's there number 1377 to pursue uh, pursue is a, is a bit weak. The idea of chasing somebody or, or following after somebody, this is an active pursuit, and the intention is is that when you catch them, uh, you're going to hurt them. <laughs> All right? This is a hostile pursuit. You Not only do you intend to chase them, but you intend to chase them and bring them to harm once you get your hands on them. And so it has the, the idea of persecution involved with it. And uh, 1377, I was just going to put it up here and let you look at it a little bit. Um, the persecution in verse 16, there we have it. I thought I had these links, so one window will move the other window. For this reason, in the uh, Nestle text, Kaidea Tuta Ediokon, and there's your Dioko right here, and the... Um, Amazing part of it here, it almost looks like Dioko, is that you, you, put a, you put an epsilon in the front of it there, and uh, then the on ending you're not going to be familiar with. But it is a, uh, 
it's, a, it's an imperfect tense as opposed to an aorist or a present or any other type of tense that could be used. And the imperfect is, is very vivid in the way that it, it demonstrates a duration of time. This is not a one-time only deal, all right? Uh, if you do something once and you never do it again, right? Let's say you, um, you took a piece of bubble gum, you stole, right? But you only did it once and you never did it again, right? Because you got caught and your, your mother punished you, your dad whooped you real bad, the, the store manager let you have it verbally, and so you're crying and all this, and you're afraid the police are going to get called and you're going to go to prison, all right? So it's the one time you've ever done anything like that, okay? Well, then, for the verb to steal, you would put that in an aorist tense, one time, one time only, you did it, it's done, Okay? You would not put that in the imperfect tense. That would not be uh, something that communicates something you did continuously or habitually, rep- repeatedly, and so forth. Okay, This persecution here uh, is prompted by their understanding or their uh, problems with him breaking the Sabbath. And it just started there, didn't end there. It wasn't a one-time deal. This becomes the pattern then throughout the remainder of his life on earth is that they are going to be in a persecution mindset, all right, to persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so you have the imperfect active indicative here of, of Dioko. And uh, one of the things, we have a number of Libronics users here, but one of the things you can do with, you can just simply right-click persecuting, and you can come down here to Englishman's Concordance. And next thing you know, this thing is going to open right up. And it's going to give you every use of Dioko. And it's going to lay them right out there. And that's going to be too small for you to read. I can probably fix that too. Um, just for demonstration purposes here this morning. And let's go to that. There we go. Does that look larger? Okay, so here's uh, Dioko, and it tells you right there, Strong's uh, Greek is number 1377. And um, it gives you the, uh, in context there, uh, with, a little, with a little blurb, with a little verse snippet, a little clip as it were, how uh, Dioko is utilized in the various places. So you see right there, there's four times in, in Matthew chapter 5 and a couple more times later on in Matthew. And, and you can see in the context how it's used in Luke and John and the different places. Um, you, you have the idea of pursuing, like do not run after them there. But unless, unless literal running is, is determined... You know, unless maybe there's a race going on or you have a reason to translate it, run after or pursue. For the most part, uh, dioko truly means, uh, means persecute. And that's what we're finding again and again and again throughout the New Testament. Anyway, that's a feature that you have. And if you have the uh, Logos software, regardless of what level you have, you don't have to have the Ultimate Scholar Silver uh, High Price Edition. If you have the basic level entry position, and if you have either a King James or a New American Standard Bible, you can right-click any English word and generate that Englishman's concordance and, and look at it right there in very, in very short order. All right? So, spotlight the tools that you have to use. Now, when we were in the Mosaic Law last week, and we looked at Exodus chapter 20, and we, I don't mind looking there again, but, you know, we have commandments. And the commandments say, thou shalt not, right? And, you know... You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, you shall not worship them or serve them. Um, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And verse 8 is uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Interesting, that's not a thou shalt not. That one's a thou shalt. That one is a positive command. Observe the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. Acknowledge the Sabbath. Okay? And... Uh, Verse 12 is another positive, honor your father and mother. And then the thou shalt not uh, murder, adultery, steal, false witness, covet. And, and we go through the Decalogue that way. Now, in nowhere in this text do we have the, the or else, do we have the consequence. You know, thou shalt not murder or else. You know, if you do murder, what happens? Okay, well, you get that later. You get that later in Exodus. You get that in Leviticus. You get that throughout the development of the Mosaic Law. You get the consequences. All right, consequences for murder were what? 
Death. Okay. Consequences for adultery was what? Death. Yeah. Consequences for uh, stealing was what? It wasn't death. No, you had to pay back and then you had to pay recompense. You had to pay, um, in some circumstances, sevenfold and so forth. All right. Penalty for homosexuality. Death. Rape. Death. All these other things. Okay. Nowadays, we, I mean, it's like the end of the world when uh, a government tries to execute a murderer. Say, can you imagine the conniptions the different groups would go into if we impose the death penalty for adultery? Can you imagine the outcry in the in the news? Well, yeah, try finding a politician that would vote for something like that anyway. All right. Um, now, what was the penalty for breaking the Sabbath? Death. Yeah, death. They found that fellow there in Numbers 15. We looked at it. Um, and he was out there gathering sticks, gathering firewood, and violating the Sabbath, and he was put to death. Okay. Nowhere, though, is there ever a penalty that's assigned under Mosaic law for persecution. Right? Nowhere is there a license to persecute. Anywhere. Okay? Old Testament, New Testament, there is never, ever a license to persecute. See? When, when, a, when a local church administers church discipline. It's done in love. It's done in grace. And it's not a persecution. It is simply a faithful exercise of church discipline, of admonishment, of warning in the different stages that go along the way. There is no persecution. See? And, and everything that Dioko communicates, everything that even the English word persecute or persecution indicates, that's not our realm. See? And it's not God's realm. God doesn't persecute. God disciplines. He, he administers punishment. He will execute judgment. But he doesn't persecute. See? Just like he doesn't tempt. He'll test us, but he won't tempt us. Okay? The whole concept of, a, uh, of, of people in the name of religion or in the name of whatever deciding that they need to persecute somebody. What is that? There's no biblical basis for that. For persecution? Is it, and to then claim that they have a, a righteous cause that they're defending by persecuting somebody? Okay? And, you know, all through the church, we got that history of, of uh, you know, whether you want to talk about the Inquisition, or you want to talk about anti-Semitism, or you want to talk about uh, a variety of other places where persecution became the mode. Well, is there a biblical basis for that? No. So, we have this concept of persecution where... We're going to um, hound somebody and we're going to afflict them and we're going to make them miserable and we're going to bring them harm and we're going to, um, to, uh, to, to uh, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but persecution is not biblical, not for us to engage in. Uh, now, we'll, we'll suffer it at the hands of the adversary. We'll suffer persecution at the hands of the world, the flesh and the devil, but we're never to be the administrators of persecution on others. All right. So it's it's remarkable that they go into this persecution mode and then ultimately they're going to go into the, the murdering mode when they put them on the cross. All right. Point seven. The Lord's public teaching at that point revealed the father's work. The father's uh, the Lord's public teaching at that point revealed the father's work. It's going to respond to the persecution. And how does he respond to the persecution? He responds by utilizing that opportunity to reveal things concerning the Father, to reveal things concerning work, to bring biblical principles to bear in this very area where his critics are attacking him. All right, to bring that to bear. Now think about, we don't get persecuted by and large, we have it rather soft, don't we, as 21st century American Christians. But we come under, I won't call it persecution, we come under criticism, right? Uh, you know, our types of churches, they'll say, well, what's wrong with you guys? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why do you do this other thing? Say, why do you teach from the Hebrew and Greek? Why do you do all this other stuff? Why don't you do these other things? Okay? Why don't you pass a plate or whatever? Okay? When those criticisms come in, we can react and respond and we can use those as teaching opportunities can't we we can say oh 
You want to know why we don't pass a plate? Here. And we can give some content in terms of principles of grace giving, principles of, of not letting your, your right hand know what your left hand is doing, principles of, of giving in secret so your father who sees in secret can repay. And we can use that opportunity to lay out some, some positive teaching with respect to any particular doctrine. Say, why do we do public baptisms at, at, uh, at uh, Barton Springs? Say, why don't we have a baptistry in our church? Okay, well, just as a matter of philosophy, I, th- I think that baptism should be a public event as a witness, as a testimony to declare to the entire cosmos that here is a believer that's identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that they are publicly declaring that witness, and they should be inviting their unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, everybody, and in front of all of Austin and so forth. See, that's just an opportunity to teach biblical content and say, here, this is our approach to the scriptures. So here's Jesus getting persecuted. And he's going to use that persecution, that event, that trigger as the opportunity then for him to teach doctrine, to teach content as it relates to work. All right. And so he answered them, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. That is a direct answer to, in verse 17, to the persecution in verse 16. He answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And he uses this as the opportunity. And they're not going to like this. Notice the response in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more. All right. They went from a persecution mindset in verse 16 now to a death concept in verse 18. They were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath. Stop right there. Was he breaking the Sabbath? No. In their minds, though, he was. Now, how did he break the Sabbath? By telling the other guy to break the Sabbath? By doing the miracle? By healing him? By doing a work of power? Okay. Which of those 39 classifications of Sabbath breaking we looked at last week, which of those 39 classifications did he violate when he healed the man and said, uh, take your pallet and go home? How did he break the Sabbath? You know, and this is one of the more um, low-key healings anyway, because he didn't spit, he didn't make any mud, he didn't smear the guy's eyes, didn't do any of that. He asked him, he said, do you, want to, you, do you want to be well? And, you know, he complains and he says, uh, you know, nobody, I don't have anybody to lower me in the water when the water stirred up. So Jesus simply says to him, get up, pick up your pot and walk. The miracle, the healing was almost uh, uh, kind of unobtrusive, rather, uh, rather unseen, rather undramatic. He just says, you know, rise, take your pot and go home. And the healing had already taken place by the point when those command, when that command had been given. So how did he break the Sabbath? By telling the guy to get up and go home? Well, don't confuse these guys with the facts. <laughs> because they're convinced that he's broken the Sabbath. And because they're convinced in their minds that he's broken the Sabbath, he's guilty. Not only that, beyond breaking the Sabbath... He was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All right. Now, um, is he guilty of that? Is he guilty of that? Well, that, that is what he's declaring. When he says, my father is working until now and I myself am working, he is declaring equality with the father. That is a very clear equality with the father. And if you or I did that, we'd be wrong. If you or I stood up and said, I'm co-equal with God the father... Well, that'd be blasphemy. I'm not God. I'm not the Father. I'm not deity. But Jesus Christ is. See, he is God the Son. He is accomplishing his Father's will. Calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Well, therefore, Jesus answered. Okay. The answer in verse 19 responds to the increased persecution of verse 18. Just like the answer of verse 17 answered the persecution of verse 16. These answers are responses to their uh, actions, their thinking, their hatred, their hostility. 
So therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. We're going to spend some time on this and um, just give you a couple of sub-points on it. I just want you to see the opposition, though. Sub-point A, the message of the Father and the Son is a message that produces the greatest satanic opposition imaginable. All right, we see it in this passage. We're going to see it in chapter 8. We're going to see it in 1 John. And beyond looking at it biblically from a New Testament standpoint, it's something that we have simply observed in the years of ministry. When a church gets serious about teaching the things of the Father, adversary doesn't like that. Okay? He obviously he doesn't like the teachings of Christ. That's one thing. He doesn't like that. But when a church goes beyond the teachings of Christology and starts to develop the Father, that really, really sparks the conflict. Because most, most believers don't even put it this way or think of it in these terms, but Satan views himself as a counterfeit father. Satan is preparing the grounds right now to reveal his counterfeit son. And at some point, as soon as the church is raptured, the counterfeit son will be unveiled and Antichrist will be unveiled. But for the time being, Satan views himself as the counterfeit father. He said, I shall be like the most high God. He doesn't view himself as a counterfeit Christ. He views himself as a counterfeit father, as an alternative, as a substitute. And he is getting ready to unveil his or to reveal his uh, his counterfeit Christ, his counterfeit son. And so when Bible teaching starts to bring in the information that pertains to the Father and to the Son, opposition strikes. And we see that here. Um, this application in terms of how the, uh, the Son chooses, in love, chooses to submit to the Father. Um, when you think about verse 19, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Does that mean we're denying omnipotence? Are we saying that God the Son is not omnipotent? No. We understand omnipotence. We understand Trinity. We understand that, that God the Son is just as omnipotent, just as sovereign, just as righteous, just as holy. He has all the divine attributes that God the Father has. But what he's saying here is that he is choosing, because it's his love to do so, to obey the Father in all things and not to do anything contrary to what the Father has first of all instructed him to do, but also what the Father has shown him how to do, demonstrating. Unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. All right? And uh, in my mind... There's a, there's a lot we can do with respect to that and should do. We won't be doing it this morning. But things that we can teach as it pertains to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as it pertains to Trinity, and how it demonstrates that even though the Father and the Son are co-equal in essence and nature and, and all the rest, the Son voluntarily, they have a, a leadership and response relationship. And in that, what are, what are we looking at right there? Don't we see a wonderful picture of marriage in that right there? where you have a husband and you have a wife, and, and no one, biblically, would say, well, the wife is inferior. The wife is... is, is um, because I think the, the biggest thing where uh, people panic over the whole concept of submission is they think that, well, that means that I'm submitting because I'm inferior. Or I'm obeying you because you're superior. And they put this superiority-inferiority thing, they inject that into leadership and submission. And it has no place even being there. In most, in a lot of marriages I could name, I'm going to look to the ceiling so I'm not looking at anybody. Kind of personal this morning. Well, we've got two husbands and wives here this morning. So, uh, in any event, I could name a lot of marriages, not just in this assembly, but, you know, all over the place, where ultimately the, the wife is far beyond any, any place the husband is, okay? In, in knowledge and in maturity and in, in a lot of things, Okay? Uh, she's been saved 20 years longer, and he just got saved a month ago. Well, what do you think? Okay, He just got saved a month ago. He's a babe. She's a pastor's daughter, was raised in the church, has 30 years in Christ. Okay, Where do you think the maturity level is in a marriage like that? Well, she's going to have a far 
greater maturity than the husband's going to have. But where's the leadership submission pattern going to fall? Again, the husband's going to be the leader. See, and she has to have a lot of maturity in order to do that. Right. So I'm kind of venturing off track here a little bit. But what, what this verse and other passages communicates is not not an inequality or an inferiority, but how it is that in grace and in love, submission can take place because the son loves to do this. The father loves to do this. And we see that love there in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And it describes one of those greater works is going to be the resurrection itself. And uh, phase three for each of us as we enter into glory and uh, the things we're going to get to see there. Let me just read on down through the rest of down through verse 23. Uh, Verse 21 says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So that, and this will come in when we get back to Bulology in a couple of weeks on Sunday mornings, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All right, so God the Father came up with a plan in eternity past. The Son agreed to it. The Holy Spirit agreed to it. They work all things after the counsel of His will. And that plan, the Father determined that He wanted to glorify Jesus Christ. That it was His, He would love to honor and lift up God the Son for all of creation to behold and worship and love and, and serve. And the Father determined that that was what He wanted to do. See, don't you think that took a bit of humility? On the father's part? Because the father didn't magnify himself. The father magnified the son. Now think about it. So often we look at the kenosis of Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus emptied himself, laid aside his privileges, came in the form of a man, right? Humbled himself, lived the human life. Okay? And we look at that and he, where he chose not to exercise deity for the, the 32 or 36 plus years that he lived on earth. All right? And we, we view that, and, and we need to view that. That's, that's a glorious truth right there. But how did God the Son learn, or where did He get that pattern for such humility? He got it from the Father. Because the Father had already exhibited that humility when in eternity past the Father said, I'm going to magnify the Son and not magnify myself. Okay, So the Father set the pattern for humility by not magnifying Himself, but by magnifying His Son. So Jesus Christ imitates that pattern of humility. By not magnifying himself, but laying aside his privileges and coming to identify with human beings. All right. We also become imitators, imitators of Christ, imitators of the father. When we do what? When we choose to not magnify ourselves, but to serve Jesus Christ. That's why it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. So we, by humbling ourselves, we become imitators of Jesus Christ, imitators of the father. And the plan is accomplished. The adversary, his plan is just the opposite. (laughs) His plan is promote yourself, right? Stand up and prove to everybody how awesome you are. And then demand your rights. As Satan did, I will be like the Most High God, and I will do this, and I will do that. Okay? So Satan's program is always self-promoting, self-exalting. God the Father's plan that Jesus Christ lived and demonstrated is uh, self-humbling. And let him exalt you at the proper time. So, as you might expect, opposition then comes. In chapter 8, if you join me there, there's a lot of this and uh, where he highlights how he's seeking to do his father's will. In verse 29, he said, uh, verse 28, he says, uh, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But in verse 44, there's another father in view. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So, we've got two fathers in view. God the Father and your adversary, the devil. All right, Both are fathers that will influence their sons to do the things that please them. God the Father influences us to do the things that please Him, but the devil the Father does things to influence His 
brood of vipers to do the things that please him. And so messages that gear in on the Father and the Son that highlight our passages like Galatians and and, and where we cry out, Abba, Father, where we can have that intimacy with our Father. The devil hates those passages and those forms of teaching. And, And believers that have an intimacy with the Father and an intimacy in prayer where we can resist the devil and he will flee. That's exactly why. All right. Finally, 1 John, it's not just limited to the Gospels. Not just limited to the Gospels. I think um, as we look at this with the Father and with the Son, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then we have the denial of the Father and the Son. Which is chapter Oh So chapter four? Yes. We have the Father and the Son here. Verse 2, chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. That Spirit of Antichrist that wants to deny the uh, <clears throat> relationship between the Father and the Son. And... There's another passage in here, too. I'm just not spotting it at the moment. Um, All right. There was a third text in there, too, I wanted to uh, highlight. Is it No. No. Anyway, I'll drop myself a note and we'll find it. I, uh, my apologies, I meant to. I knew it wasn't on the slide, and I intended before this morning to make sure I had it in my notes. It. Uh Yes, 22 and 23. 22 and 23. Because who is the liar? Who is the liar? And um, verse 18, children, it is the last hour. Thank you, Brian. It is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. That's 2,000 years ago. And it's already the last hour way back then. Okay. Instead of being all wrapped up on who the capital A Antichrist is going to be in the Great Tribulation after the church is gone, I don't care who the, who the Antichrist is going to be in the Tribulation after the church is gone. It doesn't bother me at all because we're going to be gone. Whoever that capital A Antichrist is going to be, I don't sweat that. The ones we're concerned about now are the many, lowercase a, many Antichrists, plural, and they're here right now. And they're active right now. And even back in John's day, they were have appeared and they have risen. And uh, a lot of them come out of church backgrounds, which verse 19 points out. And then uh, who is the liar in verse 22, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. That's the verse I was trying to find. 2.22. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And that love relationship between the Father and the Son is a work relationship in John 5. It is a teaching relationship in John uh, 7. It is, a, um, it is a pleasure relationship in John 8. It is a sanctified relationship in chapter 17. All throughout the Gospel of John, we're finding that relationship between the Father and the Son. And when you get into Father and Son teaching in the church age, you are the target in the angelic conflict because here we see the aspect of the liar and the antichrist and the hatred for the father and the son this is antichrist the one who denies the father and the son whoever denies the son does not have the father the one who confesses the son has 
the Father also. We need to abide in both the Son and the Father. All right. So, as you see it on the screen, the message of the Father and the Son is a message that produces the greatest satanic opposition imaginable. Subpoint B. The Father's work was to demonstrate was to demonstrate that work to the Son in love and to motivate the Son to accomplish the Father's good pleasure. The Son the Father demonstrates and the Son imitates and the Son does the work. To demonstrate that work to the Son and to motivate the Son to accomplish the Father's good pleasure. So back now to John 5, and we read the verses already, 17 through 23. All right. Not just to do all the work, right? And not teach the Son anything. See, God the Father didn't just, you know, tell God the Son, just back off, don't touch anything, you're going to break it. Right? And then take human form, be born of a virgin, come to earth, die on the cross, accomplish redemption, go back to heaven, and then tell the Son, all right, they're fine, I took care of that. No. He teaches, He instructs, He demonstrates, He provides the leadership, and He entrusts that work to the Son. The Son then goes forth and does it. It's a wonderful pattern. All right? It's a wonderful pattern. It's the same pattern we had in, John, in Proverbs chapter 8. Somebody had that question the other day. In the, the work of creation, they had the Father and you had the Son there in Proverbs chapter 8. And uh, the Son was before Him as the master craftsman, but the Father was the one as the architect designing the creation, demonstrating and uh, the Son was actually the one doing the work. All right. Verse... Uh, and, and so hopefully, I've given you some things to chew on in the next couple of weeks. We're not coming back for two weeks. Uh, but giving you some things to chew on. When you read something like verse 19, and you read verse 20, <clears throat> when, when you read something like, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing, when you read a verse like that, are you limiting it to the Incarnation? Are you limiting that to just simply the period of time when Jesus was walking on the earth after his baptism and gathering disciples and ministering on earth? Are you limiting it to that? Or are you opening up the verse to examine God the Father and God the Son who have eternally been in a love relationship with one another? Okay, When God says, Behold my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, he's not talking about you know at the moment, right here, right now, while he's in a physical body on planet earth, he has always been well pleased with the beloved son. Always has been, always will be. He has always loved the son. The son has never done anything contrary to the father's will. And that's not just during the earthly incarnation. That's from eternity past. The son has always been in uh, loving obedience to the father. And so uh, I just ask you that question this morning because I think a lot of times when the Son is speaking of the Father, a lot of times believers read that and they read it in a very limited way, a very narrow way, focusing it just on the earthly ministry. And I think it's obvious when we get in here to verses 21 and 22, we're talking about resurrection, we're talking about judgment. Clearly we're looking to future things there. We're looking on into glory and, and, and eternity future and, and the, you know, the judgment of the, of the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne. I, I think the, the context of this passage demands that we widen the view out and not just keep it very narrowly focused on the, uh, the earthly ministry of our Savior. All right, point eight. This occasion also provides... Yes, thank you, 1045. I was supposed to remind you about that. All right. This occasion also provides the open-door opportunity for evangelism. Verses 24 through 29. I find it amazing. There's folks who are getting saved. And he has an opportunity to respond to the persecution, to teach about the Father, and to, uh, to give gospel information. To talk about the fact that we must place our faith uh, and the fact that in the resurrection... There's one of two choices. <laughs> you want the resurrection of life or do you want the resurrection of judgment? All right, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. This is a really interesting passage as it pertains to salvation by grace through faith. When you think about the moment in time you were saved. 
at that moment of time when you believed. When you went from being an unbeliever on the road to hell to a regenerate son of God on the road to heaven. Okay. Um, I think a lot of times we talk about believing in Christ, and that's, that's a good way to put it. It's a biblical way to put it. But it's believing in the Father's promise concerning the provision of redemption through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Does that make sense? Because ultimately, the trust and confidence we have is in a judge who is going to be faithful to his promises, right? If God's a liar, are any of us saved? No. None of us are saved if God's a liar. Because how, do we, how, how could we eternally hold God? I don't want to phrase this wrong. Um, if, if God's a liar or God could change his mind or God could not be faithful to a promise, then, then we can't be saved, right? Because we've placed our faith in Christ. That's our confidence. That's our assurance. I know I'm going to heaven because I've placed my faith in Christ. I am now his son, and I know that. And I know that he's not a liar. I know that his promise is faithful and true. All right? So it's the aspect of believing. It's not a blind faith. Anytime we exercise faith, it is in an object. See, I believe uh, the promises as God has revealed them in his word. So, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's, it's no different than faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You get the content of a message and you place your trust in that content. You know that it's faithful. He has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's the sphere. We're no longer in that sphere of death. We're now in the sphere of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Just like we had in the previous paragraph, he gave all judgment to the Son. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. And you'll note it does... Did you note the pattern there where he said an hour is coming and now is in verse 25? In verse 28, he leaves it with an hour is coming. He doesn't say and now is. He says an hour is coming. Okay, That's further down the road. We're not as imminent on that. Uh, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. All right. So everybody that's ever died, every human being that's ever died, Unbeliever, believer, doesn't matter. If you've died, you're going to be resurrected. But some will be resurrected to life, that is, believers in Christ. Some will be resurrected to judgment. And so we have the aspect there. I don't mind necessarily a gospel tract that says, Judgment Day is coming, are you ready? I think we even have some out here. Judgment Day can be used as an evangelism tool because everyone is going to face some form of judgment. It is given unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Now, ideally, we want everybody to be at the judgment seat of Christ, don't we? Because that's the judgment for redeemed believers in the dispensation of the church. We don't want them to stand before the great white throne, do we? Revelation chapter 20, because that's the judgment for the unbeliever. That's the judgment that Cain... And every unbeliever since Cain is going to stand at, they're going to stand at the great white throne judgment. Every unbeliever since Cain is going to stand there. All right? So judgment day can be an effective tool if we use it to say, you know, are you ready? But we've got to be careful because we don't want that readiness message to be something about good works, to be something about do good deeds, turn over a new leaf, change your ways. Okay? The only, the only distinction between the saved and the lost is faith in Christ. Okay? And so the readiness for judgment then, believe in Jesus Christ, believe him who sent me, there from verse 24. Christ concludes his message in verse 9. Oh, and by the way, um, let me just draw this out because this is, this is perfect. I'm going to, well, you know what, I don't have to do that. Let me switch to this. This is, uh, is perfect in the way that, like we've seen so many other times, 
in verse 29, we have two resurrections. In verse 28, we've got uh, an hour is coming and all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. All right. And I hope I don't panic everybody this morning in thinking that we're talking about work, works there. All right. Um, but in verse 29, we have two resurrections. Agreed? And uh, one is good and one is bad. Right? Life and one resurrection of judgment. Distinction being is that those who believe in verse 24 have eternal life, do not come into judgment, but have passed out of death into life. Okay? You following that? You're seeing how verse 24 controls the hermeneutics or the interpretation of verse 29. All right. And so it's not works, which verse 29 would make you think, but it's faith believing in the Father, which verse 24 makes clear. So, two resurrections. But, does verse 29 tell us when? Does verse 29 tell us when? No. It doesn't tell us when. It just says it's coming. Okay? And so we have no problem with the fact that this happens, and then this happens, and that there is a minimum of a thousand years in between. Right? We have no problem with that. This is why we're commanded to rightly divide the word of truth. This is why we spent the time in previous circumstances, such as we had a passage in Isaiah chapter uh, 61, and the Lord read from it in Luke chapter 4, and he stopped his reading in the middle of a verse, because in this passage, he had first Advent information and second Advent information. And guess what? Those were separated by now at least 2,000 years. Is this making sense for you this morning? You can read a verse, such as verse 29 here, resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment, okay? And not panic over the fact that there's at least a thousand years to separate those. Okay? Because in my timeline, we've got the rapture of the church. We've got the seven-year tribulation. And then we have the thousand-year millennial reign. Then we have the great white throne. Okay? I put the resurrection of life there, the resurrection of judgment there. Tim LaHaye puts the resurrection of life there. I disagree. I think the rapture is for the body of Christ, for the church. I think David and Moses and Abraham and all the Old Testament saints uh, aren't going to be raised with the church. They're going to be raised with the tribulational martyrs. The house of Israel will be raised there at the second advent. But either way, it's either a thousand years apart or it's a thousand and seven years apart. Between the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. Okay? Wanted to highlight that for you this morning as well. He declares his testimony. Point nine. Let's move on to point nine. Christ concludes his message by declaring his testimony to be the final witness in the Father's gospel call. Verses 30 through 47. The final witness in the Father's gospel call. Look how many witnesses we have here in this chapter. As we read through it here. I can do nothing on my own initiative. Same thing he said before when he talked about working. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Then he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now look at all these witnesses. Okay. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. So subpoint A, the baptizer was a witness. The baptizer was a witness. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
So you stop and consider there, there could be all kinds of tools in leading somebody to Christ. And, and to be privileged to be the final one, to be the last one in a long chain of things, is great. Because what you're doing there is you're reaping when you have not sown. All right, You're entering into somebody else's labor. You just happen to be on hand and the Holy Spirit used you, put you at the right place at the right time. Right? And um, somebody has a question, how does this work? And, they have, and you have, you're ready to give an answer. You give them an answer and take them to the Scriptures and they believe in Christ and they're saved. Okay? But long before you ever walked in the door, other things were happening. There were other tools, other instruments, other events. The Holy Spirit was convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This unbeliever was being worked on knowing that he was guilty, knowing that he was separated from God, knowing that he had a need. And he was being convicted, and that heart was being prepared, and it says the Father was drawing him. Okay, And that whole process was taking place. And it may be that... Uh, um, I mean, I remember there was an occasion when I was able to describe salvation information to a man after he was really vulnerable and really hurting as his father had just passed away. And um, during that time of grief, he had questions. And I didn't tell him anything that he hadn't heard before. He'd heard it many times before. He'd heard it from his father before. And now his father was in heaven and couldn't, couldn't verbally speak to him any longer. But the memories were still there. See, and so different tools along the way, different witnesses along the way. That's why we can't claim any credit. <laughs> we're not doing the work. All right. Doesn't need us. So John was a witness. There's other witnesses. The, uh, the miracles. The miracles were witnesses. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. There's a witness. And in this very chapter, a work was done. A man was healed after 38 years of sickness. A work was done. A miracle was done. A testimony of divine power was accomplished. And these Pharisees couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. All right. So those bear witness. There's another witness. God the Father. God the Father is an abiding witness within believers. He's, he has a witness prior to salvation because He's the one that's drawing. He's the one that's wooing. But He has an abiding witness within believers after salvation as well. Verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. We have the Father's abiding witness. Galatians calls it the Abba witness that we have. We, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit testifying with our human spirit that we are indeed children of God. We have that Father's witness within each one of us as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Now, have we heard His voice? Have we seen His form? Only to the extent that we've seen Christ. You see Christ, you've seen the Father. So much, I know I'm going fast this morning. I'm going fast because I'm trying to cram it in before a two-week break. <laughs> All right? Didn't want to leave you hanging during that, uh, during that period of time. But we have these witnesses. All right? And then the Scriptures. The Scriptures are an eternal witness both for Christ and against those who reject the Gospel message. Verses 39 through 47. The Scriptures are an eternal witness both for Christ and against those who reject the Gospel message. Nothing greater than just using the Scriptures as your witness. Someone wants to argue with you. Stop, nope, nope, stop. Don't argue with me. Your argument's with the Scriptures. Right. So don't don't think that I'm making this stuff up. Go to the scriptures. If you got a problem, go to the scriptures. Okay. Uh, different things. People don't want to come and they think uh, you know. Then <laughs> I've been told yeah, I've invited folks to come to church and uh, I've been told you know I'm not going to go because uh, you're going to criticize homosexuals. Or you're going to criticize whatever. And they got a hang up with that. And I said, well, wait a minute. It's, your, your problem is not with me. It's with the Scriptures. I'm just going to teach what the Scriptures say. So it's nothing personal. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
This really hits close to home in a Bible church, doesn't it? Because we say, well, what's wrong with Bible study? Right? Is there anything wrong with Bible study? Well, if, if you're searching the Scriptures for the wrong reasons, if you're searching the Scriptures to find evidence to back up your argument, to make your point to... Uh, uh, you notice in verse 40, they're unwilling to come to me. They've got, they've got a real faith issue here. They're becoming Bible experts, but they're negative. Negative towards Christ. All right, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The Scriptures tell us about Jesus Christ. Isn't that pathetic where you can become a Bible expert and not know Jesus Christ? Why is it that knowing the love of Christ is what surpasses knowledge? Because you can, you can memorize... And, and a lot of the linguists that I use in my study, remarkable linguists and scholars, none of them are saved. They're unbelievers. They, uh, they're convinced that the Bible was you know, a collection of traditions accumulated by man and blah, blah, blah. They'll deny God breathed inspiration of Scripture. They're tremendous scholars. They, they spend their lives dedicated to the text. They're unregenerate. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And um, they have barriers to their faith. Verse 44, how can you believe? Okay, how can you believe? And then, I'm over time, but verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. As soon as he says that, I mean, there's, there's nothing you could insult them with more than Moses. They idolized Moses. They seated themselves in the, seat, in the chair of Moses. They viewed themselves as the successors to Moses. And he says, the one who accuses you is Moses. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Everything in the law was oriented to Jesus Christ. The sacrifices, the offerings, the festivals, the feasts, everything. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? All right, we've got all these testimonies to witness, uh, witnesses to Jesus Christ. Um, we will take two weeks off. Ladies are still meeting for prayer, as I understand it. But we'll come back on the 14th. December 14th, and uh, resume with episode 13 in the Galilean ministry. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. Father, we've touched on a lot of, a lot of different subjects here today, and maybe we've confused some things by trying to bring in too much in too short a time, but we uh, trust that the Holy Spirit is faithful to guide us in, uh, in the truth. We trust that uh, matters we discuss today will be matters that will edify uh, believers. And we just leave it in your hands with much thankfulness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.